Welcome, everyone, to the final week of our Three Things Bible course on waters, water in the Bible, gardens, and mountains. So we are going to look at a, one aspect of the image of mountains in the Bible today. Last time, we looked at the mountain of God, and God is a mountain. So we are reading about the cosmic mountain in Genesis 1 and 2 coming out of the sea of chaos and we were reading about Sinai and Jerusalem and Zion and what is Zion and what does that look like even through the New Testament and into Revelation. We are going to look at that same thing from the side today. The the story of the Bible can be told in many ways. You can get from Genesis to Revelation uh, following many paths but uh, the one we're going to focus on today is as a conflict, the story of the Bible told as a conflict between Zion and Babylon. So two, the two rival mountains, each of them having many mapping onto different actual mountains. So Zion or God's mountain is Jerusalem. It's Sinai. Um, it's all these little places where... God meets with his people throughout the Bible. Uh, and that also has a, a dark counterpart. And that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, the the anti-God mountain pops up in many places. We, in, in an hour, we only have time to look at two of them. And I'm, I'm not convinced we'll really be able to do justice to either of them. So we are going to look at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And we're going to look at what is going on with Mount Hermon in the New Testament and Peter's confession of the Christ and Bashan. Uh, all these, we're going to travel some narrow and winding passages through the Bible to interesting places. And how do the Nephilim tie into all of it? So that's where we're going. There's much more. I have more written down than I will be able to get to. Uh, so let's just jump right in. To begin, we're going to look at, um, we're going to set the scene with two passages, Psalm 68 and Jeremiah 51. So here we are. This is Psalm 68, skipping down to verse 15. Psalm 68, 15. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan. O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Interesting. We, we are going to look at this handful of verses at length today. But right now, I just want to, I just want to introduce. This is a, a mountain called Mountain of Bashan in this psalm. And it looks with hatred at the mountain that God desired for his abode, which is, in, in this case, Jerusalem. So Bashan is a mountain in the north of Israel, and it's looking with hatred down at uh, the mountain that God has chosen. We're, we are going to come back to that. But first, let me just, I'm just setting the scene. Because the story I'm telling is the Bible as a battle between two mountains. So this is me, I guess, trying to uh, prove to you that I'm not making all of this up. 
Jeremiah 51, 24. All right, scroll down to 24. Jeremiah writes, I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil that they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. Behold, I'm against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch up my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. So here, the evil mountain in question is not called the mountain of Bashan, but it's Babylon itself and the region of Chaldea, where Babylon is. And Jeremiah says, calls it a destroying mountain, which destroys the whole earth. So there's, there's a sense in which he's not just being dramatic necessarily. I think in Jeremiah's mind, he's tuned into the fact that Babylon is more than Babylon. It's uh, Mount Zion's opposite number. It's the, the mountain metaphorically that wants to destroy the whole earth, the anti-God mountain. So this, I, I just chose two, two little moments in the Bible where um, it, it pops up, this, this opposite number to God's mountain, um, popping up in the language or the, uh, yeah, the metaphors of, of the authors of the Bible. And those are the two mountains that we're going to look at. We're going to look at what's going on with Bashan, but first we're going to look at the Tower of Babel. So if you want to know the story of the, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, you have to have in mind the context of the previous 10 chapters. I'm, I'm not going to spend much time going over the appearance of God's holy mountain in Genesis 1 and 2, because that's how we started the other five discussions. But in Genesis 3, things go wrong, and humanity is exiled from the mountain and spreads out into the other lands, and things just get worse and worse and worse until it gets so bad that the thoughts of humanity are evil all the time, and God sends a cleansing flood to wipe the evil from the earth. But he saves Noah and his family in an ark, and they end up at the top of a mountain again, and things, things go wrong again, as, as we've talked about. So that brings us to Genesis 10. Let's look at Genesis 10. Let me share my screen again. Genesis 10 is one of the more boring, exciting parts of the Bible, or maybe it's more exciting, boring parts of the Bible. It's a genealogy of the sons of Noah. So Noah had three sons. And Genesis 10 tells the story of their descendants. Uh, especially, it, it highlights one figure especially named Nimrod. So genealogies in the Bible are always brief. Really, if you're on the genealogy at all, all you're entitled to is uh, X the son of Y. And if you're particularly notable, you get X the son of Y who did Z. And Anytime a genealogy deviates from that form, it's something significant is being communicated. So we can look at the, the differences from the standard and zoom in on them. Nimrod, he, he's not just uh, Nimrod, the son of so-and-so, who did such-and-such, such, which would be, that would be enough to highlight, kind of underline him in bold and his deeds in bold. 
but he gets, uh, he, that's what he gets in verse eight. And then verse nine and 12 go on to list the rest of his resume. So this is, this is the genealogy is screaming at us that part of the story that it's telling has to do with this guy, this person. So what's going on with Nimrod? Let's pick up in verse eight. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Let's hover over that for a second. In Hebrew, that is a gibor. We're going to come back to that in a minute. So he was the first on earth to be a gibor. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothir, Kala, and risen between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. So there is Nimrod's resume. What is this, what is this communicating? Nimrod is called the Gibor. That is not the first time that word has come up already in the Bible. Can anyone think of the, the first time? Uh, the, the first time they're mentioned is in Genesis 6. So just before the flood, there's this odd thing that happens where the sons of God and the daughters of men uh, come together and from them, the Nephilim are born. And it's not a, it's, it's not a good, being a Nephilim is not a good thing. Here, let's just skip back a couple chapters. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. These were the Giborim, the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And as soon as that happens, God says, we, we need to do something about this. So that then that's the kind of the prelude to the flood. So this is not something that has a, a neutral valence. It is a bad thing. So Nimrod, being called a Gabor, is also not a good thing. This is the Bible's way of saying that this man is a monster. He's a man of blood. He's infamous. Uh, he is a big deal back in the day. But infamous for what? Verse 10 spells it out. It says the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. The Tower of Babel is a familiar story, um, but the, it should be called Babylon. Babel, this word Babel, is, appears other places in the Bible, but it is only translated Babel here. Everywhere else it's translated Babylon. So the beginning, Nimrod founded Babylon. That's what this genealogy is saying, which is one of the four great enemies of the people of God in the Old Testament. You have uh, Canaan and the Canaanites, Egypt, Babylon, and after Babylon, Nimrod goes on to found the fourth, Assyria. So this person is the, the founder of two of the um, great enemies of the Old Testament and the bloodiest and most vicious and brutal empires that the world has ever known. Uh, there, if you go into their battle tactics, in history or look at the carvings in in museums uh these these two empires were just utterly brutal so this person is is in a sense the 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 latest fulfillment of the evil that was unleashed in genesis 3 he's the the inheritor and he is somehow able to gather all this power uh, to a greatness and found these empires, or at least the, their existence is being laid at, laid at his feet. So what does it mean? 
why is why is this such a significant thing? What does it have to do with mountains? Uh, and and where do, where does this go? Where does this seed that the table of nations here in Genesis ten is planting? What does it grow into? Uh, the next story answers a bit of that question. So in the next story is the Tower of Babylon. Uh, we should probably just go ahead and read it. It's short. So here, here I'll just go ahead and read Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city, and therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. What is going on in this story? Uh, for, for a long time, I sort of read this as a just-so story, how the leopard got his spots, so how the Bible's version of how all the languages came to be. But if we reduce it to that, we're missing all of the meaning that the, uh, that is trying, that is being sown and, and built. So let's slow down and look at things a bit closer. So I've already said that Babel is Babylon and Babylon is in, in some ways, the archetype of the godless city. It is um, as soon as people fresh from the fall uh, are able to gather in enough numbers, they start doing this, this thing. They, they want to gather together and build a tower up into the heavens to make a name for themselves. So it has these, those are their stated objective, objectives. We're going to use this new technology of bricks and build a tower to leave the earth and regain access into the heavens, gather people together, and make a name for ourselves. So in a sense, they want to rebuild the cosmic mountain that they lost. They, they're, they're trying to build, it's more than just a skyscraper and, and off, with office blocks. This is, uh, in, in the ancient mind, this would be a, a temple, a, a ladder to heaven. They are trying to um, regain access that the the um, the exile has blocked them from in Genesis three when they were cast out of the garden and down into the plains away from God's holy mountain. So that's one thing they're trying to get. They're trying to regain entrance into the heavens, the heavenly realms, by their own strength. Let us do this for ourselves, and they're trying to legitimate their dominion over the earth and that's to to see that aspect of it you have to get into what how these tower temples functioned in ancient cities so they were meant to mirror 
the abodes of the gods on earth. I talked about this a little bit last time. Like if, if you think about um, most Westerners, modern Westerners are familiar with Mount Olympus. That's where the Greco-Roman pantheon lived. Uh, so Zeus and the other gods lived at the top of this mountain. And that was more par for the course than, uh, than the exception to the rule. That's, that's where all the old gods lived uh, back then. It was, it was a cliche or a standard. It was just the, um, the cultural conception. So that is in part what we are to understand as the, the mission of the Tower of Babel, that they are, they're, they're, they're empire building and they need a way to um, legitimate that dominion. And so we, we have this mountain, this great kingdom Babylon will be gathered around this temple, this ladder to heaven. And at the top of this mountain will be uh, our version of where the gods live. And so that the king who is a sign of the gods can rule with impunity. So his authority can be established. What's wrong with this? Uh, in the context of Genesis 1 through 11, a lot is wrong with this. So the from Genesis 3, things just get worse and worse and worse and bloodier and bloodier and bigger and bigger. And this is the, the crescendo, the cresting wave of that momentum. So that's one thing that's uh, wrong with it. It's the gathering together of the darkness that the curse has un- unleashed on the world. And it's, it's in violation of the mission that God gave to humanity in Genesis 1 and 2, that they would multiply and spread throughout the earth and stretch the flourishing that God had given them at the top of the mountain into all the other lands, so that the Garden of Eden was to spread, and the templeness and the with-godness that Adam and Eve had at the top of God's holy mountain was to be spread throughout the whole earth, and that goes wrong. And it doesn't happen. And instead, as soon as you, the people have the power to do so, you see them uh, doing the opposite of all those things. So they're gathering together. That's why they're building this tower. Also, they don't they don't want to be dispersed over the whole earth. They want to bring they want to consolidate their power. And instead of having dominion in the sense of Genesis one and two, which is could be likened more to the dominion that a gardener has over the garden to work with power to ensure flourishing this is dominion of its domination of one person or, or group over others which ends up in violence and blood and they're trying to regain heaven by their own achievement they're trying to reverse the exile without ending sin and that's the thing that god sees and says we better get on top of this so it goes down and forcibly disperses them. Uh, because he knows that the problem isn't that they're exiled, that they're separated from the heavens, but why they're exiled. And he will end the exile, but only after ending sin. James Jordan in Through New Eyes his book, which is a major source for all the things I've been saying in this course, wrote this. Mountains and pyramids are ladders to heaven. At the Tower of Babel, sinful man tried to build such a pyramid ladder from the ground up, but God forbade it. Thus, if there were to be a new ladder to heaven, it would have to proceed from above to below. And he sets up 
describing the way that that is that that story is told uh, in the book throughout the rest of the Bible. And that work begins in the very next chapter when Abraham, God decides to start a people of his own with Abraham and his family and it calls him out of Babylon back to what will be the promised land. So we have this anti-God Babylon. It's, it's the first major achievement of the forces arrayed against God's holy mountain. They're, they're copying um, in the wake of the fall. They're copying what they had, but making a darker version of it. We're going to pause on Babylon and the Tower of Babel. Uh, there's, we could speak for the rest of the hour on this theme, tracing it out, but there's, there's a, I want to switch to another mountain, but before we do, let's just stop for questions. Thoughts about the Tower of Babel or anything I've said so far? Andy, this is Tim. I, I've never heard of uh, Babel being associated with Babylon. Can you elaborate on that connection? Sure. It connects at a couple points. One of them is just in this word, Babel. And it occurs in the Bible 233 times. So this is the same word. The meaning is Babel or Babylon. Babel or Babylon, the ancient site and capital of Babylonia. Situated along the Euphrates. So that's that's one of them. If we click on these other uses, here we have Babel, Babel. Babel, the kingdom that Nimrod founded. In Genesis 11, Babel, the site of the Tower of Babel. And then suddenly that same word later on in the Bible is just Babylon, 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 Babylon. So that's, that's one. There's a couple others. One of them is here. Okay, the land of Shinar. In Genesis 1.11, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Shinar is the ancient name for the territory later known as Babylon or Chaldea. It appears 10 times in the Bible, uh, notably in Daniel 1-2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels from the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed them in the treasury of his God. So Shinar is where the captives are taken by the empire of Babylon. Uh, so that, that is another little clue. Another little clue is that the next, in the next chapter, Abraham is taken out of Babylon. So this is kind of the, the prologue to where Abraham comes from. Yeah, I think that's enlightening. I think um, it just makes me wonder about the, uh, when the writing um, of Genesis may have occurred also, because of course the kingdom of Babylon wasn't until well, the empire of Babylon uh, wasn't until the 500s, maybe, um, maybe before that being established. But, but at least in terms of our, our time chronology, we're, we're far before that in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the oral tradition would have would carried this story down, but it might have been popularized or even written more uh, when, when the exile occurred later. Mm-hmm. But that, that's a guess. Um, but it, it's helpful to see the, the biblical and sort of geographical connections that are already there. So it, it's yeah. helpful just to know it overlaps. Yep. 
in the, the land of the rivers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the, the model of the collecting of the old Testament that I'm persuaded by at this point in my life is that it was, uh, well, I've heard the analogy from the Bible project of a, a family quilt. Like you have these pre-existing patches that are collected and kind of edited together and there are moments when you you get these little editorial scenes where it's roughly chronological but then there's focus given early on in the chronology to settings or people or events that you would only know if you were editing the quilt together after those things had taken place so in the history of Israel, Babylon is a, is a major player. Uh, so can, should we, are we only limited to when we look back and we say, oh, here is, here it's a major player early on too. How could they have known? Is it prophecy? Um, and I think I'm not saying that the Bible is not um, also a product of the Holy Spirit and of God, because it is. Uh, but we can also... we can hypothesize that the, the editors knew the significance of Babylon. And that was maybe even why they were, it was one of the things that they were saying um, in the, and perhaps they, a part of it was edited or um, some of the quilt came together during the, the exile or immediately post exile. They can say, we, we, we are living in this time where this one evil kingdom's power is in the ascendancy. But we know the real story. We know really who is in control. Uh, it's not it's not your God and your empire. It's my God and His kingdom. So there, I, we can theorize or have have ideas about and you know, wonder about maybe what is this saying to the culture in which it was first written. Let's move on to what is going on with the mountain of Bashan. We looked at the way Bashan popped up in Psalm 68, and I highlighted that as another example of an anti-God mountain. And just just as God's holy mountain takes many forms, maps on to several actual mountains, sometimes it's Jerusalem, sometimes it's Sinai. So which is God's holy mountain? Is it Jerusalem or is it Sinai? And the answer is yes. And they both are pointing beyond themselves to some larger cosmic reality. The same thing is going on with the the anti-god mountain is it the tower of babel is it um is it this mountain of bashan is it all these other moments where instead of meeting with god at the top of mountains the people turn away from god at the top of mountains and the the answer is yes Uh, however i think there are some interesting things going on with this other mountain this mountain of bashan so i want to Take point your attention to Psalm 22. This is another moment when Bashan pops up. Let's see. Psalm 22 is one of the crucifixion psalms. So you might recognize the first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from a line, one of the seven things that Jesus says from the cross. And I have always heard that preached and taught as he said that because it was what he was experiencing in the moment. 
uh, and we can, what was happening in, in the crucifixion, God was putting sin on Jesus and abandoning him. And that's you know, why it was, why it was so painful other than the physical torture. Uh, I don't think necessarily that's what's going on. I think it's a misreading of the moment in the gospels when the gospel writers highlight that sentence in Jesus's mouth. Uh, one of the reasons is that it's the first line of Psalm 22, and that's not what Psalm 22 is about, even though that is the first line. Psalm 22 is about almost the exact opposite of that. It is a, a sufferer who's beset by enemies and yet experiences the nearness and vindication of God. And if you think about that, uh, once you go, you find the quote, you read the context, and we've talked about this before, the, when the gospel quotes the Old Testament, the gospels, uh, they're not just getting the line, they're getting where the line came from too. And they're saying, it's almost like a, like a, a, a tunnel, a small tunnel into a large cave. So you've got to crawl through the tunnel and then look at what's inside the cave. So if you look at what's inside Psalm 22, that the quote, this, the quoted sentence takes us into, um, you can begin to ask yourself, what's, what's really being said? And then ask the next question, why is it that the gospel writers are, draw, are reaching into the Old Testament, grabbing Psalm 22 and kind of pasting it on top of what's happening in the crucifixion? And I, I think that's exactly what they're doing. So the, there are some, when you read through Psalm 22, you'll see some moments that are not only, not only the first sentence, but other, other moments that are highlighted or brought to the fore in the events of the crucifixion. So let's jump in on verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. You can see some crucifixion. It's kind of, the language is kind of drawing near the crucifixion. here. My heart is like wax, is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Uh, so it's, there are some references here to the meaning of what's going on in the crucifixion that are Im impossible to miss if you've read the, the gospel accounts because the gospel writers are taking pains to their, they're kind of using the lines from Psalm 22 and weaving them you know, into, their, into the story of the crucifixion to tie the meanings of the two together. They want you to, in part, when you ask the question, what does it mean that Jesus was crucified? They want you to come to Psalm 22 and learn the answer to the question there. What's going on in that, in that scene? Uh, so that's why they're including the dividing of the garments among them. That's, that's one layer. That's one read. It's also, we can also, on top of that layer, talk about the prophecy layer. So here's this ancient poem talking about a suffering servant surrounded by enemies uh, whose clothing is taken, divided among the people who are murdering him. Uh, and then in the actual historical moment, 
we're getting way off topic from this battle of mountains, but it's all very interesting. In the historical moment, that happens. Uh, so it's it's not one or the other, but it's it's both meaning layers that kind of sandwich on top of each other and deepen everything. Anyway, I'm going to steer us back onto Bashan. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. This is odd, especially if it refers to Jesus. Are we supposed to picture the picture bulls around him and dogs and you know all these dark animals menacing him? What's going on here? And what is so bad about Bashan? So I'm going to walk us through a chain of scriptural references to try to answer the question, what are the bulls of Bashan? And um, what do they have to do with this enemy mountain that is is one of these Babylon stand-ins? We're just going to do a little Old Testament verse leapfrogging. And it is, uh, it's, I want to bring to the surface something that is there in the Old Testament, a chain of meaning that is there but hidden. So this chain starts with Genesis 6-1, the bit about the Nephilim that we already read. The Nephilim were the offspring of humans and evil spiritual beings. Uh, and I, I won't read this again, but we've, we've already read it. They were on, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the Giborim, the mighty men. Now, what happened to the Nephilim and their descendants? Uh, it doesn't seem that the flood wiped them out. And maybe that's going on with this little verse in Genesis 6 and also afterward. Um, in those days and also afterward, because they pop up again in in the Pentateuch and in Joshua. Uh, in Numbers 13, so the, the Israel has come out of Egypt and they're in, the, they're in the wilderness, and they're about to come into the uh, promised land, and they send in spies, and the spies freak out because the, the sons of Anak are there. And in, ES, uh, in Numbers 13, 33, we read, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So the spies freak out because they are being brought to the precipice of this land that they are supposedly going to take. And there are these Giborim, these warrior kings uh, who have each their own little empire. And they come from the Nephilim. They're the sons of Anak. And they seemed like grasshoppers. We seemed like grasshoppers to them because they're giants. Where do I get that? Let's jump to the next little scripture moment. In Deuteronomy... Two, uh, 10 and 11. So if in the numbers reference was the Nephilim are the sons of Anak. So who are the sons of Anak? In uh, Deuteronomy, we read, the Emim formerly lived there, the people great and many, and as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they're also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them the Emim. So there's... This is where it gets a little confusing, and this is why I want you to go back and read this on your own. So we've got the Nephilim, bad, bad boogeymen of early Genesis, and the mighty men of old, the men of renown. And they are 
around in the time of the conquest and the wilderness wanderings. And they have many names, uh, these legendary figures. And one of them is the sons of Anak or the Anakim. And other groups call it the Moabites, call them the Amim. And like the Anakim, they are Rephaim. Let's go on. Deuteronomy 3, reference number 4. Og is one of the giant-sized Rephaim. Who is Og? Uh, in Deuteronomy 3.11, we read about this person, King Og, who is the king of Bashan. It says, uh, for only Og, the king of Bashan, was left out of the remnant of the Rephaim. So he's the last one. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? And you can go over there and see this giant bed. Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. Now let's go on to the next reference. So we have Nephilim, Anakim. They're also Rephaim. And, oh, let me tell you about one of a significant member of the Rephaim, King Og. He was huge. Nine cubits was his bed. In Joshua, uh, we learn that Og rules Bashan. Og, king of Bashan. Joshua 12.4, Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edrei, ruled over Mount Hermon and at Salaka and all Bashan. So here is this um, scion of these ancient evil figures named King Og. And he's a warrior king. He's, he's a giant like Goliath. Goliath is one of these number. Uh, and Og's kingdom is up in the north around in a region called Bashan and he rules at the foot of Mount Hermon which is going back to Psalm 68 it's that Psalm 68 this poem about this other mountain and it, how it looks with hatred at God's mountain Jerusalem so we're now we're now filling in what's what's going on with this other mountain Mount Hermon and we find out this is where this giant dark lord Ancient Voldemort, a giant size, had his kingdom. So Bashan is connected with the Nephilim. The big picture is um, Mount Hermon is, I've tried to come up with some, some kind of modern day analogy. And the best I could do is like, it's like Las Vegas meets the Bermuda Triangle with some haunted house mixed in there. It's like this legendary place. It was known as the Gates of Hell. And partly another layer to the legend, the dark legend of this place, is that in the the intertestamental literature, which is not include not included in Protestant Bibles, there's a book called First Enoch, and it's not included in Protestant Bibles because it's recognized as not canonical and God inspired in the same way as the books uh, that we have in our Bibles. However. It is very valuable as a historical document, and it fills in what the people, it, it was one of the major influences on the imagination of the culture that produced it. It came out of what they thought was real and influenced what they thought was real, which then influenced uh, what the Bible says. So it's, it's one of these kind of hidden ingredients, the book of Enoch, that gives us a, a window into uh, what they were imagining when they imagined these spiritual realities. And in the book of Enoch, the Nephilim, who are these evil spiritual beings who come and make this plan to go seduce the daughters of men. 
they land from the heavenly realms at the top of Mount Hermon. So it is their it is their headquarters, their hot spot. And this is tapping into like the the idea that the at the top of mountain is where the mountains are where the gods make their their homes, their palace, their temple. So this Mount Hermon is surrounded by this this dark legend of the the apex of um, this old te- dark Old Testament influence, kind of these these hidden enemies that are are running are running like a thread through the Old Testament that modern readers really miss because we don't have the stories. Uh, you know, when we read the word Bashan, we just think, ah, oh, we keep reading. But they would have recognized, they would have had a, a more powerful reaction. Uh, so it's Las Vegas meets the Bermuda Triangle with a dash of haunted house. And that is coming back to Psalm 22. In when the psalmist and the gospel writers were trying to convey what was, well, when the gospel writers were trying to convey what was happening in, in the crucifixion, the psalmist was trying to give words to this kind of archetypal innocent sufferer who's beset by enemies uh, whom God arrives and has victory over. They surround this figure with the bulls of Bashan. So you get these animals, these dark creatures from this evil place that are, are hounding the, the suffering servant. All right, let's talk about Peter's confession of the Christ. Matthew 16 and 17 came up last week, and it was, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. So let me, let's revisit that, those passages and go even deeper. Let me read Matthew 16, 13 through 19. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I have always understood this passage to be about Peter's kudos, basically. People don't, some of the other people are confused about who, who people say Jesus is. But Peter sees to the heart of it, and he says, you are the Messiah we've been waiting for. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, for you know, God revealed this to you. And then he, Peter gets this reward. And he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the Roman Catholic Church has kind of taken that to, um, has done a lot with that. You know, elevated Peter as the, as the prime apostle and then tied Peter to Rome. And so Rome is the prime bishopric. And then out of that, the ancient medieval church. Uh, I think that's a misunderstanding. I, I, I'm persuaded that, that, that Peter might not be the rock Jesus is referring to. 
in most modern Bibles, you get this little note that says the Greek words for Peter and rock sound similar. And so it seems like the translators of the ancient text are, are making the connection almost makes itself like you are Peter. And on this rock, you, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But I think there's something else going on. Um, for instance, let's take all that rabbit trail we did a couple minutes ago about Psalm 22 and Bashan and the bulls of Bashan and, and what the, the local legend is about Mount Hermon. And just keep that in mind. So they have come into the district of Caesarea Philippi, which if you look on a map, a map is next to the ancient cities of Ashtaroth and Edre, where Og, king of Bashan, had his kingdom. So they are at the feet of Mount Hermon. They've come to this place, which is the Vegas, Bermuda, and haunted house of, of the ancient world. And they, they would all know the, the significance of Mount Hermon, that it's called the gates of hell. Uh, and I wonder if Jesus is saying, he's, he has this moment of revelation. He kind of takes off, takes off his humble cloak and his apostles say, you know, you are, you are the Christ, you are the one. Uh, and it's, it's a pivot in his mission and it's a prequel to what's about to happen. And I, I wonder if Peter, Peter is Peter. I'm, I'm not arguing that Jesus is naming him Peter, but I wonder if the rock is not Peter, but Mount Hermon. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, the, I said this last time, but it, I think it's worth reiterating. Um, when I've read this in the past, I, my, my, my imagination immediately goes, okay, he's saying Peter will be the cornerstone of the church. Um, and that church will be such a strong fortress that even all of hell's armies won't be able to get in through the gates. But I'm, I'm glossing over it. When I slow down and read this, I realize, oh, that's not actually what's being said. First, because Peter is not the cornerstone of the church. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Jesus is the rock on which the church is built. So is that, if, that's not, if that's not what's being said here, what is being said here? Uh, and I, I think it is announcing an invasion instead of proclaiming how impregnable the church will be. Uh, the gate, if, a, if gates cannot withstand, that's not a defensive metaphor. That's, uh, it's, they're, they're the gates of hell and Jesus is invading them. And the, he will not be kept out. So they're standing at, this, at the foot of this evil mountain known as the gates of hell, the, the doorway to the underworld in, in the local folklore. Um, and he's saying, we're going in. Let's go back to Psalm 68. Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is where we started. And down in verse 15. We were looking at this, O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan. Um, there's some interesting translations happening here. First, I don't, the ESV renders this, O mountain of God, with a big G, but I don't think that is a great translation given the context of the psalm, the historical context of Bashan, and the way that Hebrew poetry works in which things are, are repeated. So both of these lines are about the mountain of Bashan which is not the mountain of God, 
Uh, this word is Elohim, which is plural for gods. And it sometimes, many times and often, it refers to the ruling God, Yahweh Elohim, the, the Most High. Uh, often, it just refers to gods. So I think a plausible translation is, O mountain of the gods, mountain of Bashan, many-peaked mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with hatred, O, ma- o many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode and we know this one is properly translated as god because of the way hebrew poetry works because the next line is where yahweh jehovah the lord will dwell forever so you have these mountain of the gods looking with hatred at uh, this um, at jerusalem at zion at god's god's mountain and then there's a pivot and suddenly the psalm is talking about god's military might the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. There's a lot going on in, in this cluster of verses that it's easy to miss. So let's just go back and make sure we're getting it all. Now, the chariots of God are twice 10,000. This is a this is, it's a battle hymn. It's saying, you, you look at this, at us with hatred, but the, the strength that is with God is more than the strength that is with you. And the Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. I find this a mysterious reference to Sinai, which is another mountain, Mount Sinai, uh, where God gave Moses the law after crossing the Red Sea. Uh, Other Sinai episodes, that's where uh, after Elijah, the prophet Elijah, has his major confrontation with other prophets of the dark gods uh, of Baal, um, and then has a complete identity collapse and thinks he's going to die and everybody's going to kill him and flees to Mount Sinai. He meets God in the, the still small voice. So Sinai is is another of the mountains of God. Uh, and what does it mean that Sinai is now in the sanctuary? And this word is Kodesh, which is holiness. The NASB translates this. The Lord is, the Lord is among us as at Sinai in holiness. But the ESV translate it, translates, it with, translates it with the strange sentence, Sinai is now in the sanctuary. I don't quite know where that fits given the context of Psalm 68. Um, But given the New Testament, it's very interesting. So we, um, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but the, the battle hymn continues and says, you ascended on high leading a host of captives and then continues on even among the rebellious as well, that the Lord God may dwell there. And I'm wondering, and Philip, this is getting to your, your comment about, or my hypothesis about um, Mount Hermon being a good thing. I wonder if this, if there should be an, I, I, that last word there should be italicized so that God with his might enters into the mountain of the gods, the mighty peaked mountain um, and manifests his Sinai presence there so that even among the rebellious, these, this place, this place of evil, the Lord God may dwell there, 
you know, italicized there. So that even this thing that is the territory of the dark gods, uh, God is saying, that will be my home. Why do you look at, at hatred on Mount Zion? I'm coming there. Given Psalm 68 alone, that might feel, that read, and it is a read, I'm kind of bringing things together that aren't so clear on the surface of Psalm 68, uh, might seem like a stretch. But given what happens in Matthew 16 and 17, I think there, I think there's some support for that. I'm interested in that read. So Peter, good old Peter, confesses Jesus is the Christ. Jesus reveals a bit of the plan. Why why we've come to why we've we've come north. Um, with his uh, with his band of followers. And then the very next moment, uh, Jesus in Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So it's interesting that from that time, after Peter says, you're the Christ, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, all right, let's do this. You know, we are, you are at the spearhead of the invasion force of the kingdom of God, uh, taking back his creation. And Peter says, hang on, wait a second. You're going to die and you're going to suffer. And we're going to go to Jerusalem and all those bad things are going to happen. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Uh, you're, you're holding me back from the purposes of God. And Peter has many moments when he just looks like a fool. And I guess jumping over to another interesting topic about the um, validity of the Gospels, I, I see that as, a, as supporting the fact that Peter was a source of three of the Gospels, was one of the sources, because he looks like such a fool. Peter, uh, John Mark, in church tradition, John Mark was Peter's scribe for the gospel of mark and then matthew and luke use mark's narrative come later and use mark's narrative so peter ends up looking like a fool in three of the four gospels uh, because i think he he was telling stories of his own folly but peter gets uh peter has a rough go in the rest of matthew 16 and in matthew 17 and it's easy to be tough on him but I, I think he, we should also be understanding if he doesn't get quite get the whole plan yet. Perhaps he's thinking about Psalm 68. And Jesus just told him, we're going to go kick down the devil's door. And, and maybe he's thinking the chariots of God are twice 10,000. I, I know a psalm about this mountain in which God, you know, comes and liberates a host of captives. Uh, after ascending, you know, ascends on high to the top of the mountain. And Peter's like, that's, we're, this is now, we're doing this. And then Jesus starts talking about dying. And, and Peter must have thought, hang on, this isn't how the story ends. You're not going to be defeated. You can do this. Uh, I've seen you work miracles. You just told me that the gates of hell are, are not going to be able to hold you back. Why are you talking about dying? And I think that's why the Gospel of Matthew highlights that it's at this point that Jesus really turns up the heat on, let me tell you how this is we are going to reach this goal. Captives will be liberated. Uh, territory will, will be taken back uh, from the rebellious forces that have 
held it captive for God. Um, but it's not going to be the means you think. It's not the means of conquest, but it's death and resurrection. And so in verse 24, he says, he starts telling them things like, uh, if anyone wants to come after me, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross. And you're going to lose your lives because they, Jesus is setting them on the same mission that he is on, which is, um, which is conquest, but it's conquest through love and suffering and sacrificial death. And Peter doesn't get it yet, but he will get it. And that is why he tells the story of himself not getting it. In the next chapter, Matthew 17, you have the transfiguration. It's not explicitly stated that this high mountain that they go up to in 17.1 is Mount Hermon, but I think we can, I feel good about making that conclusion uh, because that is the mountain that they're at the foot of. So let's read Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and then led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from a cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Then they go down the mountain, and more interesting things happen. Let's just, I I know we're a little over time, um, but let's just, parse a few of these things to try to land the plane on this Mount Hermon thing. Uh, So they go up, they go up Mount Hermon and this episode ensues. Who did they meet? They meet Moses and Elijah. And why might that be significant? I, I having, as I prepared this study and reading Psalm 68 and that strange phrase, Sinai is now in the sanctuary. That the Lord is with us as he was in Sinai in, hol- in holiness in the context of this mountain of Bashan. And here you have Jesus leading his army, which is not on the outside, does not look like twice 10,000 chariots and thousands upon thousands, but it's just a ragtag band of people who don't know what's going on. And he just takes three of them up there to the top. And they meet Moses and Elijah. And poor Peter starts just going on about what he can do. And he's kind of, he has some ideas and plans for the Lord. And I love that it says, while he was still speaking, the light shone. He just kind of was babbling on. And then this bright cloud descends and the voice of God speaks. And they know, they know it's the voice of God because they, they're terrified. They fall on their faces. So when do bright clouds come and overshadow things in the Old Testament? think about that for a second it doesn't happen often it happened when the tabernacle and the temple were inaugurated when god's god appears in his glory as this powerful brightness a cloud that fills the space so this is temple language that's happening on the uh, up on the devil's mountain it's almost like god is saying i live here now all of this is mine this thing that you took from me i'm i'm taking it back and this is my beloved son with whom i'm well pleased listen to him 
So then Jesus heads back down the mountain and continues to press his rule over his over enemy occupied territory by casting out the child that is in the or the demon that's in the child. And I'm reminded of Psalm 68, at the end of the bit that we read about he ascended on high, leading captives in his train, taking gifts for humanity, even among the rebellious. And the captives in this case are his liberated followers and those those whom those whom will be who will be liberated as a result of the things Jesus is doing and the things they're doing. And the gifts, I I was reading um, Mike Heiser, and he made a connection between this moment, Psalm 68 and Ephesians 4, where Paul quotes Psalm 68. And and we don't have time to really go into that, but you can, armed with the things that we have been talking about, go read Ephesians 4 and how Paul interprets Psalm 68 and the giving of gifts post-conquest of Jesus. So Paul also thinks that Psalm 68 is about things that Jesus does and that it is truly fulfilled at Pentecost. So we're going to spend just two minutes on Pentecost to try to tie together the Tower of Babel and this moment where because in, in conquering the darkness jesus opens opens the spirit to his people so pentecost is it's kind of a reverse tower of babel so if the tower of babel is um this gathering together of evil and when people are gathered together they they build this monument to themselves to try to pierce through the heavens from the ground up and in pentecost all the nations are once again gathered together on God's holy mountain. They've come to Jerusalem and they're about to hear a sermon that thousands of them will believe. And the spirit comes down. So in a sense, the, the heavenly realm invades the earthly realm and people are empowered with gifts. And just as with in the tower of Babel there, they spoke one language and then their languages were confused. In Pentecost, they begin speaking different languages. And in Acts, you get a, a survey of all the nations that the people in, who are there come from. And it's just east to west, the, the whole known earth. So it's this very, it's a snap, it's a diverse snapshot. But they all hear the things that Peter is saying in their own language. So when the spirit comes, when the heavens come to the earth in, in the form of the church, the tower, the curse of the Tower of Babel or the consequences of the Tower of Babel or the confusion of languages are reversed. And it's this moment that um, God's kingdom begins to burst the bonds of his chosen people, Israel, which is what it has been up to that time, except for little kind of teaser moments that it won't always be just Israel and streams out to the other nations in a in a very dramatic way all right let's stop there have a little discussion we covered a lot of ground and that was only choosing two of the anti-god mountains there's there's so much more we could talk about here but i am going to turn it over to y'all What are you thinking? 
what should we discuss and pursue? It's easy to think of Herman as a, a desolation with your descriptive language, but it's a beautiful, beautiful mountain with a very fertile plain. Um, it's why the Golan was contested and is now in Israel hands. Um, so it, I think that just to, because it's a beautiful place, it can be used as a, a metaphor and the psalm, mm. the ironic psalm, uh, you know, mm. compared to how good it is and pleasing it is to the Lord when people dwell mm-hmm. in unity. It's like Aaron's beard blessed with oil and the snows of Mount Harriman. It, it, it's a desirable place um, to be in, to obtain. Um, I wondered about that too, Tim, actually, because I wonder if, in Psalm 133, it's the idea of two mountains that's the most important thing and unity being the thing that the psalm is about. And so as hard as it is for two human beings or two groups of human beings to strive for unity with one another, mm. um, the David takes that difficulty and thinks of it in terms of mountains then thinks of the dew running down the beard as like one mountain interacting with the other for this beautiful, um, yeah, in this beautiful priestly ordination. I don't know what to do with it, though. <laughs> the beauty of Herman and of Lebanon kind of come to yeah. the temple also, the first temple. Um, yes. So that there's already a kind of for, foretaste of the unity of... Mm. Yeah. Uh, the beauty of what was an enemy or potentially is an enemy. Yeah. Cedars of Lebanon. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. And I think probably at a purely physical level, the Mount Hermon probably would have been thought of as a place of um, beauty. Then like people who, if you're like me and you're an American, your imagination of mountains has been, taken over by the Rockies where people cannot live. You know, the top of the mountain is above the tree line in the Rockies. So it's, that's the wasteland at the top, but in, in the middle East, it, that the top of the mountain was high enough that enough moisture could be concentrated. You know, the, the mountain interrupted the weather patterns, got some moisture. And so it, they were green. So I wonder if that also this very high mountain in the region would have been a kind of symbol of, the opposite thing the Rockies are a symbol of for me so that the and there would have been a place of of water coming down because of the snows so it also could just function on a practical level it probably has many layers the interesting the the idea of juxtaposing Jerusalem and Herman as a symbol of unity like bringing them together uh, is also interesting because in one sense, what things would be, you know, could be further apart in, in the language of Psalm 68. This mountain looks at hatred at the other mountain. I love the thought of um, uh, Pentecost being the reverse of Babel, uh, the Tower of Babel. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I think the, the thing with the nations being gathered mm. instead of scattered and then the language being unified instead of confused. Mm. I don't think, there's no overt quote, but I think the we can give the writers of the New Testament more credit. It's deeper than 
the connections are deeper than just mm. words. They, they're also illusions and kind of these echoes where things are mysteriously symmetrical and thus related. There's also a Sinai connection because Pentecost, they're all gathered for the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the Feast of the Giving of the Law, mm. um, where they recognize, they build their little booths to recognize the time when they all camped below Mount Sinai for when Moses went up to get the law. Um, so they're there to honor that. But G- So Moses went up and came down with the law, but Jesus had just gone up to heaven. And now he comes down with the spirit. Mm. Um, so where Moses went up and came down with the law and stone, mm. Jesus goes up and the spirit comes down with the law written on the heart. Mm. Um, so it's, there's a, there's a Sinai, direct Sinai connection there because they're all there thinking about Sinai. Something's going to come down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's the spirit. And... Mm. So what's going on with the tongues of flame in that bigger picture? Why tongues of flame? Good question. <laughs> Light and fire are one of the biblical theology themes I have on my list, but I have not delved into them. The first thing that came to mind was, well, the spirit is fire, or the spirit is symbolized as fire, but I, I don't, I can't justify that. It's yeah, because it's wind somewhere and, in there. Uh... Well, you, you get wind and fire, actually, when the Spirit comes at Pentecost. Because uh, it's a rushing wind and then a fire. Jesus talks about the Spirit as wind. Uh, um, the connection between wind and the Spirit is very strong, biblically. Yeah. But the, the, the word for tongue is used there. Uh, like tongues of fire mm. is the description. So that, I, my guess is it's connected to the the language is um, the fire being a sort of consuming force or um, spreading force um, to the testimony. But, hmm. but Let me read the there. first couple of verses of Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. There's a Babel reference. And suddenly there came from heaven another Babel reference. A sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, there's a Bible reference, of, as a fire. It's interesting that the ESV renders that as of fire or like fire. Uh, divided tongues, like fire, appeared to them and rested or seated themselves on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues this, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Or the, uh, that word is to declare, to speak out. We can stop there. But it, yeah, it goes on to do the geographical survey of who was there. And then Peter preaches. I just love how rich it all is. I could say, yeah, we can, we can focus on this part over here and we can focus on that part over here and we can run down this other rabbit hole. Um, it took so long to figure that out. I think sitting, the experience of sitting in church and you know, growing up in church, like I did, not really knowing much about the Bible outside of what the preacher said 
I just thought, what is the meaning of Acts 2? Oh, the preacher has now exhausted the meaning of Acts 2. Next week, we'll go on to Acts 3. <laughs> the preacher will exhaust the meaning of that, and then I will learn the Bible. Uh, but it's it's so much more orbital than that. You know, it's so much more you just kind of come around and you just sit in it and watch it. It's a, It's such a very modern way of understanding the Bible, of coming to the Bible. Like, if I have a smart person tell me about this once, I'll get it. And then I'll be done. That was, yeah, that, that was the beginning for me. I think actually being interested in listening to the, the smart person. <laughs> but then when you realize, oh, wait, there's, there's more. It's, it's like you push on that door. It's like you don't want to push on the door um, when the smart person's talking to you. But when you actually do push on the door, you fall in and it's, wonderful <laughs> heard the uh like contrast between western and eastern thinking uh at least modern western thinking as linear and eastern thinking as circular or spiral mm-hmm. uh, where you don't talk in a straight line you talk around the thing trying to zero in on it um but you you can circumambulate it a long time or uh, mm. definitely as you kind of discern its meaning and you get a, a whole picture of it as opposed to just kind of shoot it like an arrow in, in one or maybe yeah. just a three-point sermon but uh, yeah but uh, yes it's helpful yeah it's very rational or rationalistic Lori has her hand raised yes um i remember hearing um god gave us an imagination so he would have a door to enter in and that I wondered what bothered me was I was more excited about like Narnia than the Bible stories because the exhausted meaning had been fulfilled, you know, the, the moral. And so when you're bringing in all the beauty of the, I guess the Hebrew imagination or from God, it Mm. does, it just makes it, um, it makes it like it is the other world. You know, I, I, I really, really love that. I, I, I have one, at least one question though, but the, um, when you said the Nephilim, the, um, is that, you know, I've heard different, and this could be a rabbit trail, but because I thought the angels don't, angels don't, uh, have sex with men and, you know, all that, but is that something that is like, I know you, you said it, it keeps on going. Like Og was one of these and giants were one of these. So is that like an evil person that is like Hitler or something, or is it just a race that we don't know about? Or are they just, um, any more comments about that? What's going on with the Nephilim? Yeah. Yeah. Before I take a crack at that, I am going to just give myself a note to send some resources out with the email on that so that I don't forget. Um, I've been reading a book called Demons by Mike Heiser. And he, he talks about the Nephilim extensively at a far more technical and detailed level than I can manage. So I will find him talking about that on some blogs somewhere and I'll, I'll send that out. And the Bible project talks about the Nephilim a couple times as well, especially in their God series. They've got a series of 20 podcasts about what is an Elohim 
and what is the story of God in the Bible? Um, who are all these other spiritual beings that pop up from time to time? So some, some people have theorized that the Nephilim, the sons of God and the daughters of man, who the daughters of man are is clear. Uh, who the sons of God are is more debated. I acted like there was, my, I'm persuaded that these are spiritual beings who are siring offspring with humans. Uh, but some people say, well, that's not the case. These are just ancient kings. So these are the sons of God or people, kings who were kind of thought of at to be gods and their offspring. Or another theory is that these sons of God and the daughters of man are, it's a, it's kind of shorthand for the, the lines, the lines that descend from Adam and Eve. So there's Cain's line and there's Seth's line. And it was bad when those two lines interbred. And then that, that was a big deal. Uh, I'm not sure that does justice to Genesis 6 and what's really being said, nor what is made of the Nephilim later. Um, is Are the Nephilim like Hitler? So that I guess that would be kind of like a, like our times, very big, bad, evil king. Um, I think in some ways that there would be a lot of parallels. Yeah. That these, these are um, leaders who have consolidated power and put it to evil ends. Uh, in other ways, in those verses that I, that I was quoting from um, when we were looking at Psalm 22, leapfrogging through the old Testament and uh, the journeys of uh, Moses and Joshua, uh, the people of Israel, when, when Moses and Joshua were leading them, especially into the promised land under Joshua, you do seem to get these details where these people are actually giant sized. And there's that one note about King Og. You even get the dimensions of his iron bed, which seems quite, uh, and, and there's even that little note, like, you know, it's over there, you know, the, whoever has it still you can go see it. So there, it does seem like the, these people were t- at least quite tall. So in that sense, they were not like Hitler. And some, there's something about Goliath, who is this giant, who is this fierce um, champion of his people, who then God's tiny, tiny little David comes up and, and slays. So God's people are, throughout that time of history, were having, God was leading them into conflict with these giants. I've, I've heard it talked about that the that that was one of God's purposes, that this, the work of eradicating this race would continue. And so God brings his people into conflict with them. So there's some thoughts there, but lots of, they're certainly mysterious figures, these Nephilim. And probably a lot of it we don't get because we're not ancient people. But Mike Heiser's book, Demons, deals, deals a lot with the Nephilim at Greg. Anyone else want to offer a question? Are you able to just speak a little bit more about when Jesus is interacting with Peter and he's talking about the rock, like how you were thinking that that was referencing Mount Hermon rather than Peter? Well, the question is, what is this rock? And it does make a lot of sense, especially with the note in our modern Bibles that Peter the word for Peter sounds like the word for rock. Um, 
I'm not totally saying that that is wrong, but I am saying that there's another explanation that is, I think is also plausible that it would be likely to be missed by us modern people and also dovetails with this gates of Hades thing in the next sentence that, and and then in the next chapter, he goes up and has this, um, the spirit of God descends in, in the bright cloud at the top of this rock. So I, having had those thoughts, it's hard not to imagine that conversation being like, he's looking at Peter and says, you're Peter. And on this rock, I'll build my church. It's more of like, you're Peter. And on this rock, I I will build my church in a week's time. You and I are going to go up there and we're going to do this thing. Um, But I'm not saying that there's nothing going on with the fact that apparently the word for Peter sounds like the word for rock. But I do, I do want us to kind of pause. There, there's so many moments in, especially, you know, well, the whole Bible, where you inherit this, you inherit all these meanings. And it's like a path in the woods. Like once the path is there, it's hard to, to just walk off into the, into the trees and the bushes and, and go find another way. Um, but that is, that is really good as long as the path is, is the right path but there's because it's an ancient document and a rich ancient document and we are modern people that learn slowly and layer by layer i just have learned to feel uncomfortable or or yeah i do i do feel uncomfortable if my with my own inherited meanings um when when i just walk the path instead of looking around at the surroundings and thinking what does that mean what does this mean what's What's going on here? Is this the best path? Um, this thing that I kind of blithely conclude just because my my consensus concludes that same thing. So I think there's there is a good discipline to slow down and say maybe maybe some maybe more is going on here than I thought. And I I didn't want to say uh, my read the read that I'm explaining right now is the right one, but I would want to say. When we get to that passage, let's slow down and think and study the clues and look, look around and take stock. I remember being cautioned kind of once I was introduced to some of the tools that we've used in this study um, of original languages and root, root meanings and ranges of meanings uh, that to not fall into two errors. One was root fallacy that if we just could get the the beginning of the word the root of the word then we would know its meaning that meaning was found in situ like um a set of relations that was defined at the time in the writing um not necessarily you know from where the from whence it came and the other one was totality transfer where if we could just get all the range of meaning then we would have meaning um but it's it's good to walk around from every angle with the meanings it, that that's the spirit of play that I think is a helpful one, refreshing one to approach scripture. With. And, yeah, I yeah. agree. I, I like your phrase, the spirit of play. When I was at Labrie and would say some of this stuff or, or like put forth some meaning that was totally different than what someone learned in church. And it would kind of like, have this unintended negative effect of saying, you know, what is true then? You know, how can I know I've, how can I trust anything I've been taught? 
because you're saying things I find convincing, but they're so different from everything else I've found convincing, you know, the opposite things that my preacher back home used to say. Um, and yeah, that the, uh, the idea that the Bible, we should have this spirit of intent playfulness is, is a good answer to that moment. Um, we can, we can be curious. We can wander around the woods. Uh, we can go, we can just go explore. You, we can learn things and hold ideas and theories, uh, but hold them loosely with full confidence that um, we, no matter how old we are, we're still just kids. And the, the Bible is so deep and rich that we can, it's always got more minds and more depth, you know, more gems down in there. It takes some of the pressure off having the right answer, which goes back to this idea that approaching things rationalistically is so comfortable for Westerners. 